welcome to another edition of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. What I'm going to cover in today's episode are a number of topics related to spirits of the dead as well as demons in antiquity. This includes accounts of the exorcism of demons from people, but also from animals. We're going to begin with necromancy, which is the practice of contacting or reanimating the dead. There are stories in Greek mythology related to this. Odysseus, at one point, needs to ask a question of the deceased seer Tiresias. He performs a ritual called the Nikia, where he sacrifices animals, pours their blood into a trough, and ghosts gather to drink the blood. And as they drink the blood, they become more and more solid and can actually speak. Oddly enough, the first century AD scholar and magician Appian of Alexandria claimed to have actually called up the ghost of Homer to question him about his parentage and homeland and did not reveal what the ghost supposedly said to him. However, from what we know about Appian, he exaggerated things a lot and was pretty much insufferable, so we're not sure we can take him at his word. We also have a story in the Old Testament, which has always sort of stuck out as an intriguing account, where Saul king of the Israelites, is trying to get an answer from God about whether or not the Israelites are going to be able to defeat the Philistines. And he tries a number of methods to see if he can get a message from God about this, and nothing seems to work, including drawing lots. Now, officially, any kind of witchcraft or necromancy was banned in the Israelite kingdom because there were divine injunctions against it. So anybody who knew how to do this had been chased out. Except for one woman, an old woman from a village called Endor. So Saul visits her by night and requests that she attempt to contact the ghost of the prophet Samuel. The witch of Endor does actually summon the soul of Samuel. Only she can see the ghost. Saul cannot. And oddly enough, she acts very frightened at his appearance, which is intriguing because it might mean that she was normally a bit of a charlatan. But in this case, it worked. Now, Saul could hear the voice of Samuel, and Samuel predicts Saul's death in battle. Saul more or less faints at the news, and sure enough, the next day, Samuel's prophecy is fulfilled. This happened after the Philistine victory at the Battle of Gilboa. Various accounts state that Saul committed suicide with his own sword or was finished off by an Israelite soldier. The Philistines subsequently decapitated him and hung his body up for display. Now, moving to Greek history, we have several accounts as well. There was a major rebellion against the Persian king Darius I by Greek cities on the coastline of Ionia, the western coast of what is now the country of Turkey. Most of the cities on the island of Cyprus joined the revolt. They were led by Onesilus of Salamis. Now, the Persians crushed this revolt. Onesilus was killed in battle, and his head was chopped off and hung in the gates of the city of Amathus. This was done by the inhabitants of that town because he had been besieging it. And then bees began to nest inside his head. So an oracle told the people of the town to put the head in a shrine and sacrifice to Onesilus as a hero once a year. And this was done. According to Herodotus, it was still going on in his own day, which would have been about, you know, 40 to 50 years later. Generally, necromancy is practiced by witches, as we would commonly call them, just like the witch of Endor. We hear of several witches who got into trouble in ancient Athens, not always specifically for necromancy, but instead for preparing love potions or, in a few cases, poisons. The term for someone who prepares these kinds of elixirs is a pharmacus. These women are referenced in law court speeches, both of which date from the 4th century BC. One of these women was named Ninos, 
and she was put to death, as was another woman named Theoris. She was executed along with all of her children on the orders of the Areopagus Council. This was a group of prominent elders who had jurisdiction over certain kinds of legal cases and met on a hill in the center of Athens. Their jurisdiction covered homicide cases, so it's possible that these women had prepared poisons for clients to eliminate rivals. There's another reference to an unnamed witch who was pregnant at the time of her conviction, and the members of the Areopagus decided to delay her execution until after she gave birth. Pretty cordial of them. We hear of a witch named Chrysime who helped a besieging army capture the city of Erythrae in Ionia by feeding a concoction of herbs to a bull that would drive it insane. They then brought out the bull as if it was to be sacrificed in a ritual, but the bull had gone nuts, it broke free of its bonds, ran towards the city, and the people of Erythra thought, hey, this is a really good omen, this means the gods favor us instead. So they sacrificed the bull, celebrated a feast, and then the herbs contained in the body drove them to madness, and the city fell to the besieging army. And there's an inscription from a nearby city called Teos that prescribed the death penalty for anyone who would prepare potions or poisons. There's a region in central Greece called Thessaly, and Thessaly was renowned for witches and necromancers. Seems to have been a center for the worship of the goddess Hecate, who was associated with the dead, with the nighttime, and with crossroads. Hecate is said to have had the appearance of a rotting corpse with pallid skin, and that she had to wear a mask anytime she visited the other gods and goddesses on Olympus. And one ritual that the Thessalian witches were noted for is called drawing down the moon, making the moon appear to move and bend to their will. Oddly enough, there was a female astronomer, Aglionike, from Thessaly in the Hellenistic period, who was accused of practicing this ritual, but it may have been based upon her ability to predict eclipses. So several witches from Thessaly are connected to necromancy. And we're moving into Roman times for our best references to these witches. Most of them literary depictions, but these might have been based upon real practices observed by the authors or by people that they knew. The poet Ovid talks about a witch he calls Dipsus, which literally means drunken, the drunken woman, who calls up the dead and makes the stars drip with blood. A contemporary poet, Horace, talks about a witch named Canidia, and she's one of the two in Roman literature that really gives us our generalized concept of a witch seen in popular culture. The image of a nasty and withered old crone. She wears false teeth and has vipers in her hair. And her and her fellow witches dig up graveyards to get bones and body parts to use in necromantic rituals. But in one poem, he describes them being scared away from a graveyard by a statue of the god Priapus, the god of the penis or phallus, the statue acts like a scarecrow, but scares them off by farting at them. The poet Lucan, going a little bit further in Roman times, has an epic poem called the Pharsalia, which I described in the last episode of this program as perfect fodder for a horror film. And this is the most horrific part of the poem that I'm coming to here. It's an epic poem about the Battle of Pharsalus between Pompey and Caesar, which had taken place about a century or so before Lucan was writing. Sextus Pompey who was Gnaeus Pompey's adult son, and is described as worthless in this poem, by the way, wants to see if he can get a prediction about the outcome of the great battle. Pharsalus happens to be located in Thessaly, so Sextus Pompey contacts the witch Erichtho, 
Erichtho was already in the vicinity and licking her chops in anticipation of this great clash of armies because she wanted more corpses for her rituals. She has a habit of doing things like pulling bones and ashes out of funeral pyres, or stealing the bodies of hanged men from the gallows by biting off the noose, scooping out eyeballs and gnawing off fingernails and biting off tongues. Sexist Poppy decides to hire this charming socialite for this task, so by means of a rope she drags the corpse of a soldier killed in a previous skirmish off of the battlefield, and then she cuts open the body cavity and pours boiling blood and other ingredients like foam from the mouth of a rabid dog into its torso, and the body does come back to life and predicts the defeat of the Pompeian forces in the upcoming battle, which of course did happen historically. For our next literary account, we're moving a little bit later in Roman imperial history to the 2nd century AD. Apuleius, in his famous novel, The Metamorphosis, or sometimes called The Golden Ass, because Apuleius describes how he's changed into a donkey for a period of time, but keeps his human mind, also due to witchcraft, by the way. The Metamorphosis includes the story of a man named Thelephron, who was paid a large sum of money to do a vigil over a body on the eve of its funeral. The dead man's relatives feared that creatures called Striga would appear overnight and steal his body or parts of his body. The prospect of doing this is terrifying to Thelephron, but he really needs the money, and they only seem to have enough to pay one man to do this, so he's going to be all alone overnight. And sure enough, as Thelephron fights off sleep and sits there with the dead body in the room, Striga make their appearance. One of them appears in the shape of a weasel, and Thelephron scares it off, but then he is overcome with a powerful need to sleep and passes out. And in fact, it is magic worked by the Striga. When he wakes up, everything seems to be fine. The body is still there. There's no sign of the Striga. But because they found Delafron asleep on guard duty, the relatives of the dead man are worried about what might have happened. So they bring in a necromancer to contact their relative. The soul of the dead man had seen everything that had happened. And he praises Thelephron. He says that the man was very brave and tried to do his job, but he just could not resist the magical powers of the Striga. And that in their fury at his attempt to thwart them, the Striga had actually removed Thelephron's nose and ears and replaced them with wax facsimiles without Thelephron even realizing it after he woke up. It's not fully clear if Striga actually are witches or some other kind of related creature, they sometimes appear in animal form. At other times, they take on a kind of incorporeal quality, which enables them to pass through keyholes under door jams and get around various obstacles. Some have proposed that they're based upon earlier Mesopotamian ideas, such as the being called Lamashtu, which would feed on the blood of infants. One can see the similarities with a story told by a later Roman poet of a group of Striga attacking the five-day-old Proca heir to the kingdom of Alba Longa in Italy. The kings of Alba Longa were believed to be descendants of the Trojan hero Aeneas, who had escaped the destruction of his city by the Greeks, and eventually the royal bloodline produced Romulus and Ramos. The infant Proca appeared quite sickly and near death after the attack, but spells were cast over the baby's room. This prevented the return of the Striga. And this helped ensure that the bloodline would continue up to Romulus and the foundation of Rome itself. Coming to the early empire, the first century AD, we have Petronius's novel, The Satyricon, in which one of the main characters, Trimalchio, is hosting a dinner party and tells the story of a group of Striga who appeared while a body was being prepared for burial. 
Everyone heard screeching outside in the dark of night and were terrified, but the family had a tall, strapping Cappadocian slave who bravely went out to deal with the Striga. He took a sword and went outside to confront them, returned shortly afterwards, claiming that he had run one of them through with the weapon, but that he had been attacked by the rest of the group and badly injured, which was obvious to everyone who saw him, and the slave never recovered, according to Trimalchio. He died a few days later of these injuries. Now, again, that's a literary source, but it probably reflects widespread belief. There are laws from centuries later in the early medieval period that attest to a continuing belief in Striga. The so-called Salic Law, the Franks from about AD 500, assumes that they do exist, and it states if a Striga were to be convicted of eating someone, she would have to pay 200 gold pieces as a fine, which sounds to me like she's getting off light. But then if you fast forward about a century and a half later, the Edict of Rothari from the Lombard Kingdom in northern Italy clearly states that it's illegal to kill someone's maid or servant woman because you think they're a Striga, because Striga don't actually exist. Now, the idea of demonic possession can be seen originating from concepts of oracles and seers speaking the words of gods and goddesses. It's not too much of a leap to move into demons from that. The idea of someone speaking with a voice of supernatural origin is, believe it or not, the original meaning of ventriloquist. That's Latin for belly speaker. One of these individuals, Eurycles, is attested as having lived in Athens in the late 5th century BC. Almost nothing is known about him, and he appears to have been viewed as a charlatan by many. Now, exorcism comes from the word that means to bind something by an oath, and it relates to the idea of control of a demonic force and removing it from its host. The Roman author Lucian, in his Philipsudes, or Lover of Lies, describes an exorcist who he does not name, but simply calls the Syrian from Palestine. And he is said to cure possessed people who are foaming at the mouth or have their eyes rolling around in their heads. He forces demons to identify themselves, either in Greek or in some barbarian language, to tell how they possess the person. And he orders them out and threatens them if they don't comply right away. Now, the whole point of this work is to make fun of people who believe in this sort of thing. So Lucian has a purpose in mind here. But again, it probably reflects commonly held ideas. In the biography of the philosopher Apollonius of Tiana, there's a story of a 16-year-old boy who had been possessed by the spirit of a soldier who had died recently in battle and who was furious that his wife had remarried. When he found out that the boy was to be brought in front of Apollonius to be cured or exercised, the demon threatened to make the boy jump off a cliff. So to get around the problem, Apollonius wrote a threatening letter to the demon, handed it to the boy's mother so that she could then read it out loud to him, and this somehow convinced the demon to depart from the boy. So these are examples of pagan magicians doing exorcisms through their own power. When we move into Christian history, the exorcists are always holy men who are channeling the power of God because working magic is seen as evil. It would appear, though, that at times it was hard to tell the difference between divine inspiration and diabolical inspiration. In the 2nd century AD, in the northern part of Turkey, known as Phrygia at that time, there was an individual named Montanus, who we don't know that much about. But he became a kind of prophet. He claimed to be able to speak the words of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, directly, and that anybody could do this. He had several followers, including some prominent female ones, a woman named Prisca and another named Maximilla. 
who had supposedly run away from their husbands to join him, or at least that was the allegation from an anti-Montanist cleric. And a number of bishops and theologians condemned it as heretical and said that it was simply the devil speaking through these people, though it seems to have caught the interest of at least one early church father, Tertullian, who seems to have been impressed by their discipline and austere lifestyle. But the establishment church couldn't really go after those people until it became the establishment of the Roman government itself. So Montanism was not fully suppressed in Roman territory until the 6th century. One later group, the Tascadrugites, a name that seems to refer to their habit of putting their fingers to their noses when they prayed, and might be translated as nose peggers or nose pickers or even badger noses, is also accused of having tattooed infants. St. Jerome discusses possession and exorcism in his biography of St. Hilarion, who originally lived as a monk in a desert area outside of Gaza in Palestine and inhabited a cell that resembled a tomb, and who was often beset himself by demons who appeared as naked women when he was trying to get some sleep, was often entreated to cast demons out of visitors who were brought to him. But once he came face to face with a possessed Bactrian camel, with bloodshot eyes and a foaming mouth and a swollen tongue, constantly roaring, having to be held with ropes because it had bit several people. But Hilarion doesn't seem to have been all that surprised to see the possessed creature. He says that demons were looking to make trouble anywhere and at any time that they could, and he cast this demon out as well. It seems that these constant petitions made him lose enough sleep that he left Gaza altogether. Pope Gregory the Great speaks a lot of supernatural occurrences in his writings, He tells of a nun who got possessed by a demon after eating lettuce that she had failed to make the sign of the crossover before swallowing it. Gregory of Tours, a bishop, a different Gregory, has several stories of possession scattered through various works, including his history of the Frankish people. One possessed man who had been thrown into a jail cell screamed that St. Martin, the patron saint of the town of Tours, where Gregory was from, was burning him, and he coughed up pus and blood, until with the aid of St. Martin, the demon was exorcised. There's also stories in Gregory of Tours of possessed people vomiting up filth at the sign of the cross, almost sounds like Regan in the movie Exorcist with the pea soup. He speaks of a cure where a possessed boy had been given water to drink that had been mixed with dust from the tomb of St. Martin himself. The demon emerged from the boy's anus in the form of two worms. The Byzantine author from the 11th century, Michael Tzelis, has an entire book called How Demons Operate and describes different species of demons, including the lucifugus, or those who flee from the light. And he says they're the most dangerous because they are essentially mindless beasts. Exorcism is practiced within several Christian denominations even today, most famously the section of the Roman ritual of the Catholic Church entitled Of Exorcisms and Certain Supplications. The text actually dates from 1614, so it comes out of the world of the Counter-Reformation, where the Catholic Church was fighting back against what it saw as the demonic forces of Protestantism. And its modern edition contains an injunction against confusing demonic possession with mental illness. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. I'm looking forward to having you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.